Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. We're calling this week's episode Government Reimagined. A pretty timely topic, we think. In case you've been living under a rock, we've just gone through the most important election in living history. A bitterly divided America is obsessed not only with who will win it, but with the integrity of the election itself, which brings into question the very institution of a democratic government. And with President Trump vowing to contest what for now looks like a very tight victory to Joe Biden, there is still no certainty over who will ultimately be occupying the White House. Even more importantly, the tensions over the process seem likely to play into the broad-based mistrust in the Washington establishment that has become ever more pronounced over the past four years. But the fact is, confidence in government was sliding worldwide well before Trump came to power. In fact, it was a key element in the political rebellion that put him into office in 2016. This trust breakdown can be traced to the economic disruption of the past few decades in which wage stagnation and ever-widening economic inequality have fostered disillusion with globalization and other aspects of the economic policy framework in the post-Cold War era. In January, the closely followed Edelman Trust Barometer showed that 56% of respondents globally felt that capitalism in its current form does more harm than good. Also telling, the barometer found growing trust inequality. In many countries, it showed an all-time high gap between the relatively high trust that a wealthier, more educated minority continues to hold in official institutions versus the ever-sliding trust that the mass population holds in those institutions. This gap, I would say, encapsulates the political division and dysfunction of our age. How should we, as a society, confront this problem? Data suggests that, with the exception perhaps of China and a few other Asian tigers, the market economy model that most countries have followed since the Berlin Wall came down has delivered little to no actual improvement in the majority of people's lives. Perhaps more importantly, it has done nothing to foster a shared belief that our governments can or even want to achieve such advances. Yet I think most people would agree, the answer is not communism. We tried that. So instead of thinking about how to change economic policy by setting the dial somewhere along the classic left-wing versus right-wing continuum, what if we thought about how to change the functioning of government itself? Or better put, how do we change governance? In other words, the process by which society sets the rules for determining how to allocate public resources. Is that how to improve the process and people's confidence in it? It so happens that right now, as much as at any time in the past two and a half centuries, there's a lot of innovative thinking going into this. Some of those new ideas are based on a framework offered by digital technologies such as blockchain, which after all, is basically a new kind of governance system, one that's designed for a more decentralized world. 
Other ideas are targeted more at our offline governance systems, our laws, our constitutions, but are no less radical in terms of how they rethink the process of resource allocation. Today, we're lucky to have two leading thinkers who are spearheading quite different types of innovative ideas to talk about where things are headed. We'll be joined by Glenn Whale, an economist and a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, along with University of Chicago Law School professor Eric Posner. Glenn is the author of the highly influential book, Radical Markets. He also collaborated with Ethereum founder Vitalik Buterin on projects related to the fascinating concept of quadratic voting. Also joining us is Jeff Saviano, who is the global lead of tax innovation at EY. Jeff is a member of the Prosperity Collaborative, within which organizations such as the World Bank, MIT Media Lab's Connection Sciences Lab, and the New America Foundation are working with governments to improve transparency and efficiency in the collection and distribution of taxes. But before we welcome them, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So we're recording this in a slightly difficult or maybe <laughs> interesting situation because- It's a challenging time. It's a challenge. Sure. So to add to the challenge, we've decided to do, as we always do, a recording that's typically about a week earlier than when we actually go to podcast. But um, for a show that's focused on government and the challenges of government, the fact that there's a kind of an elephant in the room lying in between now and when we go live is going to make this interesting. I mean, the, the, the intro that our listeners just heard is one that I recorded after the event, but the words I'm speaking right now are words that I'm speaking before it. <laughs> so, well, there's clearly an element of suspense, I must say. <laughs> we don't know what the results of the elections are right now. But just as importantly, we don't know whether we will know what the results of the election are Correct. on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday when we actually go live. Uh, so. Let alone the month of November, <laughs> <laughs> to be, I think, quite realistic. Just to think about what was set up 250 years ago and the scenarios that, that are never going to be foreseen by any constitution, I suppose, we're in this moment, Right. I mean, look, we've got a situation right now where I, allegations aside, we've got actual confirmation of like false ballot drop boxes in certain cities in California. We've got unbelievably long lines in weather stricken places in order for people to even go and vote. We've got record numbers of early voting because people are concerned about having their votes counted. I mean, I think that we already have today a lot of evidence of what you were talking about in your earlier remarks, namely this kind of mistrust in the process, which I do think translates into a broader mistrust of the institution more generally. And not to mention that the concept of government is one that has three arms, three pillars, one of which <laughs> has just been rather dramatically yep. transformed <laughs> in its makeup and could well be the deciding factor in all of this. Correct. Not coincidentally, we should, I think, note. It is a truly remarkable and I unprecedented. think it is an unprecedented American election. Using in, euphemis uh, certainly euphemistic in our, language. In this, in this century, yes. Right. No wonder everybody is on Xanax or whatever it is. It, it, it's, um, <laughs> in, in the midst of a pandemic. I can't even tell you how many, how many texts I've gotten today that are like, what is your plan for election night? Are you going to be watching, drinking, not watching, in denial? You all know, of like, the above. What, what, all of the above, right? In some combination thereof. 
So, so yeah, I, I, this is a this is an election of momentous importance to the world. There isn't really any question about that, and I do think that there is going to be an awful lot of Monday morning or I guess Wednesday morning quarterbacking around the process, but also around the outcome when we do eventually know that. Because there is a sense that it really is the democratic process that is on trial in some way here, and that the validity or the perceived validity of the election results are going to really be kind of a barometer on how well democracy is functioning, at least in the United States of America. Well, on that note, let's thank you, America, for giving us a, a, a rather good <laughs> teeing us up, teeing yes, us up for this. A, a rather good news hook for this particular episode. And so, on that note, let's introduce our, our guests. First of all, Glenn Whale, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. Before we get into some of the core ideas that you went into in radical markets and some of the other stuff you've been working on, having heard the conversation we just had about this concept of trust and political dissatisfaction. How do you define the core problem? What do you, what do you see as, as lying at the heart of this division and dysfunction that, that I was talking about? If you talk to a taxi driver, if you talk to people on the street, I think the heart of it is really a feeling of loss of agency. I think people feel out of control of their own lives. They feel that the neoliberalism, they wouldn't use that term, but you know, the moves of the last years that, that were supposed to have given people freedom actually made people feel like they didn't have agency over their own lives. I think that that's really at the very core of it. People feel like their sense of freedom and agency has been taken away. It's a great word. It's a really good sort of narrow, mm-hmm. zeroing in word on that particular point, I think. There is this feeling of disempowerment, absolutely. And I do think that that bleeds into uh, sectors beyond the democratic process. Um, but Jeff, you know, I'd love to, to turn to you. When I was at Harvard Law School, there was a, I took a taxation class and there was a prof- basic income taxation with, with Al Warren. And there was a, he basically said to us on day one of, of class one, the taxation system is the most important institution in the United States and it's the least understood. And it is the reason, it is the basis for everything that happens in our capitalist system. And the amount of politics that are actually embedded in the Internal Revenue Code would shock people that didn't know. And he said the purpose of this class is basically to make some of that transparent to you all. And over the course of the semester, he absolutely convinced me that that was the case, such that I actually became a tax lawyer when I graduated from law school. So certainly this this invisible system of subsidies, of grants in some ways, is something that is quite invisible to people. And I do think it leads to this uncomfortable sense that a lot is happening that the average American citizen certainly is not aware of. And I'm curious if you sense a similar lack of trust, or if you still think that the citizens of any kind of institution see the taxation system as something that is pure. Well, I certainly don't, don't think that, that it is pure. I think as you look around the world, and we have such different taxing systems by nation and even by subnational taxing systems. And you have some countries where now you can file your taxes on a postcard. We certainly don't have that in the U.S. It's a very, very complex system. When we focus on trust, it's probably the most contentious of the government citizen experience, I would argue, is the tax man, taxpayer relationship. It is one that is built on perhaps uh, some element of distrust. And that's why the advent and introduction of new technology systems to this, not just the bits and bytes of technology, but how it really affects people. And, you know, Sheila, there's a term that we use, and 
I learned this from the work that we do with the World Bank. They talk often about something called tax morale. It may not be intuitive, but what tax morale means is the confidence that one has in the government's ability to take that tax revenue and do something that is worthwhile and just. And when one's tax morale goes down, they don't pay as much tax. Maybe they feel a bit better about taking extra deductions or reporting less income. Tax morale is incredibly important in the world, and it's incredibly important in this country. So the opening of this discussion to talk about trust and how important that is for taxation is everything. If you take that trust away, as you erode that trust and tax morale goes down, then we've seen what happens in other countries. And that does concern me. Okay. So we have Glenwell talking about this loss of agency, this critical sense that people do not necessarily feel in control of their lives in general as being a core problem. And Jeff, you've there focused on trust and particularly as it pertains to this really important relationship that you have, the, the, almost the covenant of trust and that I'm going to give you some money and you're going to do something with it that is taxation, right? So there's a really, there's just sort of so much that we can unpack around this. On that basis, Glenn, so agency and your concept of radical markets, which you know I, I see to be one of the key features is this perpetual auction concept. Can you explain it and, and how does it help to grapple with that problem of agency? I think fundamentally, you know, the market turn, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it, in the 70s and 80s was based around a very specific notion of what freedom and empowerment are that were sort of atomized individuals. There are no large scale sort of forces towards market power, and we don't really need to make many collective decisions together. And that was supposed to deliver freedom. And, and if the world had actually been that way, it, it might have. But in reality, the world is one where we live together in cities, we live together in families, we live together in nations, and a whole range of sort of public provisions and common decisions shape the way that we live. And so what it really means to give people agency, to have a market that's really dynamic, is to empower people to have sort of the freedom to determine those institutions that decide their lives, some notion of democracy, but not democracy in the simplest, most traditional sense, because the institutions that affect us are not mostly just the nation states we live in. There are all sorts of different communities and businesses and so forth we participate in. And I think that the essence of radical markets is to figure out how we can reimagine our sort of markets and democracy together to actually create the freedom that was supposed to be created by sort of the extreme Milton Friedman style capitalism. At the heart of it is this auction concept, right? Or there's one element of it. It's not intuitively obvious to people that that's going to work. That's, I think, one of the technologies we explore. I wouldn't put too much emphasis on it, but the basic idea of it is that private property is like at the core of capitalism. And private property is supposed to give us a lot of freedom. But private property is actually a quite rigid institution. It gives you absolute rights over, you know, something like a business or a piece of spectrum or a particular plot of land. And it gives everybody else no rights at all over that. 
But you can imagine very different ways of setting things up. For example, imagine that if you own a piece of property, that you self-assess the value of that property and you have to pay a tax on that self-assessed value, but then anyone can purchase it at that price. Now, that sounds really kind of scary and invasive if you're only thinking about your own property, what belongs to you. But if you think about it from a different perspective, actually what that gives you access to is everything. It makes everything open to you. And that, to me, is what's so exciting about reimagining institutions, because once we get past these sort of narrow notions of entitlement, in much the way that you know Uber or Airbnb let us get past, oh, this just is my place, and gave us access to so many more things, we actually can realize that freedom can be much more capacious, can offer us much more if we base it not on narrow notions of mine and yours, but instead on all the things that we can together use. So I think there's a lot to unpack in there. And I want to tie this idea of ownership directly to taxation, because of course, that is, is are directly linked. But I also want to make the link between taxation and voting patterns. Certainly, we know that taxes or the specter of taxes causes people to vote one way or the other, in fact, is often a driving force in any democracy in terms of how willing people are or how they perceive their relative position to be under a taxation scheme that's being proposed by a candidate for really you know, any kind of office that can, can affect our tax system. And so, Jeff, I want to turn to you. So when you think about something like a blockchain or other kinds of digital technology, and please feel free to bring in any other technologies that you're observing as being quite relevant here, digital transformation has already affected a lot of our payment systems, uh, some of our infrastructure. We've certainly got machine learning that's underlying audits. So how are you seeing a lot of this technology, not just in improving, I think, performance of tax and revenue systems, making them more efficient, making them maybe easier to manage by governments, but are you seeing that relate to new sorts of tax proposals? Do you see that we have more opportunities to be maybe creative or flexible around taxation because of some of these technologies? And might we in the future see more than just the kind of spectrum-based, you know, kind of taxation models that tend to be dominant? I think you're right, Sheila, that you can look at many of the recent technologies that are achieving quite a bit around automation. And you can look at that from a government tax authority standpoint. You can look at it from big companies and even individuals. Like, I don't know what version of TurboTax we're up to in the world, but it gets better and better and better. And it, it tells me how much tax I should pay. And it's probably right. So the automation component shouldn't be undersold. But the real opportunity, I think, and I do believe that distributed ledger technology and blockchain in particular can help us with data that's moving on a network. And if you think about taxes and how much of technology has been built, has been very much one-to-one. It's either you're building it for a big company or an individual or for a government tax authority. And what's missing, what we see, and what I'm so excited about is as we look to, I think is the nearest, nearish future of this shift in technology, it'll be one system that handles data moving across a network and gets the tax implications right. And the benefits of blockchain, the immutability and the opportunity to have this single version of the truth and having one network with the data moving across it. There are so many use cases across tax where we believe that 
it'll be not just a more efficient, but it will help cut tax fraud. And just to have been this number is still blows my mind that across the globe every year, Sheila, we lose $3 trillion to tax fraud. That's incredible that we haven't been able to figure out how to really cut that. And I do think that blockchain could be quite effective. But it's not just that. There's a convergence of technologies too. the use of AI systems to get the data onto a blockchain and to make better predictions of outcomes, I think will be really important too. But yeah, we're excited about it. As is always true, technology is is necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. I mean, I think that there is a, a real human element here. And so you know, one thing we always say, right? I mean, people are, are creative and clever and, and, and to the extent they can find ways to shirk systems, they're going to do so. And certainly when we think about, you know, corruption within systems that often happens off book and offline in the real world. And so I'd be curious to see from either of you, both in terms of, you know, voter fraud, this kind of specter of voter fraud that we know is actually far less common compared to tax fraud, certainly, but it certainly looms large in the public imagination you know, how you both are seeing some of this coming into play or how you're seeing technology address some of this human behavior and if it can help shape incentives. A key element of the tax system that we were discussing earlier that I've been proposing is that it tries to replace government enforcement of taxes with effectively community enforcement. And what we know from pretty much the whole history of crime is that Community enforcement is the overwhelming thing that makes our streets safe. In fact, if you look at countries that have the lowest crime rates, they have the fewest police per capita because it's citizens that effectively maintain order. That was really what Jeff was getting at with this tax morale point earlier as well. Under this you know, self-assessed tax system where citizens can buy things from each other at the self-assessed price, effectively the entire system is self-enforcing. And that's really a principle that a lot of the blockchain runs under as well. So I think the more that we can move to systems that actually harness the entirety of society rather than formal government authorities to engage in making the system work, the more effective we'll be. It's such an interesting point. I think just respond to that, that, that it made me think of going the movement, especially in the 70s and 80s in this country around direct democracy. There were a series of tax crusaders throughout states like where I live in Massachusetts and in California that weren't getting what they desired from their legislatures. This was mainly at the U.S. state level, but we have examples of this all around the world where their legislators weren't representing, they felt, what their true interests were. So they followed fairly stringent rules for getting an issue directly on the ballot. And still today, when we go to the voting booths. And I just cast my ballot last week and we had three issues on the ballot in Massachusetts. And I believe in that. I believe in direct democracy and the opportunity for citizens to rise and to get issues directly on a ballot in order to achieve the results that perhaps they want to achieve. Sometimes legislators just don't get it right. And I think it's an important opportunity that we still have in this country and most states to be able to do that. Well, I'll just jump in and say, being a California voter, uh, sometimes the practice overtakes the theory. <laughs> I do think it can it can overcorrect to uh, a little bit too much at times. Yeah. So, so I actually want to speak to that. Um, I think that the real problem that we have in regards to this issue is that on the one hand, absolutely, participation is incredibly important. 
On the other hand, it's not actually the case that like the will of the majority or just everybody's opinion is necessarily the most relevant on an issue. For example, if you think about some you know, gay rights issue, this is hugely important to a small part of the population and much less so to the rest of the population. There has to be a way for those who are sort of informed and whose rights are affected by an issue to weigh in more heavily than the rest. Otherwise, you end up with asking everyone to look at issues that they know very little or care very little about. And then that gets totally manipulated by political spending and so forth. Systems like this one that we proposed around quadratic voting, which allow people to sort of have a budget that they can allocate more to the issues that are most important to them, are meant to enable the possibility of direct democracy in a way that actually preserves the ability of sort of people to focus on the things that are most important to them. And for some issues, it's more open to direct democracy. I look back at some of the tax issues that have made it on the ballot. And in most cases, it's about the size of government. I and mean, that was certainly the issue with Prop 13 in California and similar issues in Massachusetts is what should the size of government be? And I do think that's something that citizens have an opportunity that they know enough to have a point of view as to how they believe in Massachusetts, you know, through direct democracy, they cut a significant portion of the budget and the citizens spoke. We believe that government should run with less taxes. But I would totally agree. Some issues just aren't as open. Some of these issues are really complicated and we need the legislature to take it up. I'd like to come back to this question of, at some point of, of this direct democracy, and maybe we can look at the Swiss example and see how that fits. But I also want to pick up on something that Glenn said earlier, where it was this idea, I, I think, of community involvement in the enforcement, and the governance itself, where it's all this process of community. And it got me thinking about something that I really thought about a lot when I used to live in Argentina, as people who know me know that Argentina is this defining experience of my life, six years there. And I've I've since looked at the world and things like Bitcoin and so forth through a different lens. Rio de Janeiro, where I spent some time, uh, was a pretty defining experience for me. Absolutely. You encountered the favelas and, and the radical markets clearly points that out. But I had a good friend and he was a cartoonist, actually, but he was a brilliant thinker about Argentine politics. And he said, look, the difference between, as he put it, the Western liberal, North American, European idea of what government is and what had actually transpired within Argentina was that whereas in general, with all these faults, people uh, generally in the West think government is an extension. It's the moral extension of our collective will. It represents us as this moral extension. He said, that's just not the way we think of government in Argentina. It is the other. He said, it's the mafia. It's in competition with us all the time. And he goes back to like the early myths of Argentine creation. There's a, there's a wonderful poem called Martin Fierro, which that he alludes to in this. And whether or not that's Argentina's the case, but it is a great way, I think, to think about successful government as opposed to broken government, how much ownership there is of this process. Where I want to go with this is to think a little bit about how we grapple with that question in an age of globalization and most importantly of decentralization around the internet. Because as much as we think about decentralization as a blockchain concept, it kind of precedes it with the internet, right? We've created this society almost that doesn't really care about borders, that doesn't necessarily care about identity or is grappling with identity. And we've now got these structures of formation, activities, businesses, communities that are formed without necessarily any connection to the nation state where our system of government actually is located. 
So how do we create ownership if it's that sense of importance, if it's that important for how we govern ourselves in this environment, in this internet society that we now live in? You know, decentralization is really an interesting concept here because while nation states have been disempowered, sort of a global state in the form of Facebook and Google has been tremendously empowered. So in some ways, we live in a decentralized, and in many ways, we live in a hyper-centralized moment. And I think that the sense of loss of agency that has happened with people has to do with the fact that these new governments that are ruling over us have no mechanisms of democratic accountability and have that Argentina syndrome par excellence. I think you know the problem that we constantly face is the attempt to bring those types of new forces, those new governments that are ruling our lives under some form of democracy. And the nation state can't really do it because these are international forces. And if it wasn't Facebook or Google, it would be something else. And that to me is, is really the problem of our time is like, how do we create new democratic structures that give us a sense of agency over the forces that are governing our lives, which are constantly shifting and, and are often cutting across international boundaries. That's exactly it. Essentially, it gets down to the failure, I think, of the internet vision, this kind of like utopian idea that we would create this decentralized architecture, in which everybody would participate in that level. We'd establish freedom. But I think largely because we never resolved what I could see as the core problem of trust. And when we had to start realizing how we would exchange value across the internet, all we did was reimpose the idea of these big intermediaries to resolve the problem. And that's where the power came from. So I think this is where blockchain becomes very interesting. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on, on that aspect of it? I do. I do. I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm an optimist, but an optimist that carries an umbrella. <laughs> so, you know, I like to be prepared. But I think for the most part, when we look at policymakers, they've got a very difficult job. Just to give you an example, we had the leadership of the Revenue Authority in Kenya come into our lab at EY for a few days and we were talking about advanced technology systems that may be able to help them. And we were just fascinated with how much of the system is still paper-based. And we had this great discussion about decision-making within government. Now, they had just come off of a roundup of officials that were charged with some tax crimes and other corruption charges. And we had this wonderful discussion about how can data inform better decision-making in government. And what's, what's so interesting to me about as we look at the wave of central bank digital currencies, and just this week, as we're recording this, we had the first digital currency that is now in production coming out of the Bahamas. And we've spent some time studying what would the tax implications be. We have this opportunity to program taxation directly into money itself. And I think it's such a big idea because as we look at all of the different digital systems that exist in the world today for corporate personal taxation, what's so interesting about embedding taxation directly in a currency is the data that government would have about just how those policies are really having an effect within their jurisdiction. And again, I'm an optimist, and I believe that, that with that data and that with the fact that most authorities and policymakers are just trying to do the right thing, we have an opportunity 
to have a real view as to how those policies are actually being affected that we've never had before. And that, I think, is such an important opportunity for countries around the world to get their policies right and actually have policies in place that are achieving what they want to achieve. Yeah, I mean, it certainly gives more traction to the follow the money model. If you actually have the data held on something like a blockchain and you can kind of follow where you're generating taxable income uh, in various places. And we had a very interesting conversation, Jeff, I remember at one point, just about repatriation, you know, about foreign source income and tax treaties and all these kinds of things that have led companies of the kind that Glenn's alluding to, some of these bigger tech platforms to actually offshore, I'm thinking from a US perspective, offshore some of their major operations to countries where taxation was more favorable and the consequences that that's had. But I also think what you're getting at, Jeff, a bit is this concept of of money as governance. So certainly uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, right, I mean, there is a governance model very specifically and deliberately built into the issuance, uh, the minting, if you will, of Bitcoin and, and how that leads to the consensus mechanisms that actually affect the blockchain itself. And I think that when you think about programmable money, that actually lends itself to new governance models that are using some of these digital currencies as a way to, to have this impact. And so, Glenn, you know, you've written a lot recently, you and Vitalik, about quadratic voting. I'm thinking about how quadratic voting uh, might actually be such a mechanism that could, be, that could leverage digital currencies in order to affect societal change. And I'd love for you to explain to us how that works, what it is, in as simple terms as possible. And it really ties to what you were describing. So quadratic voting is a mechanism where every person has some allocation of points, or in some cases, you could actually use real money for a blockchain or something like that. And they can vote in favor of or against different issues or candidates. And they can do that not just with one unit, they can do it with many. But the more that they weigh in, the more expensive additional votes become. So the first vote costs one unit, the next three, the next five, et cetera. And what this does is it gets everyone to weigh in in proportion to how important the issue is to them. So that rather than just getting the will of the majority, you get sort of the total importance of the issue, the sort of total welfare to people of different decisions. And the thing that I think is really remarkable if you look at this in relationship to blockchains, is that in blockchains, everything is just about how much money you have. Everything is purposely pseudonymous. It's only measured by the resources that you bring to bear. Whereas in quadratic voting, there's a key role that both identity, your individual personality, and some measure of the importance or or weight bring in. And that's sort of really fundamental if you want to have any concept of democracy. And I think a real paradox is that while blockchains partly solved the trust issue, they didn't solve the identity issue. And I think, you know, the experts who think about what is missing in the internet really think that those trust and identity go together. And in fact, in almost every payment system that any corporate is dealing with, I work at Microsoft, so we deal with this all the time, those two things are inseparable from each other. I don't think that we'll really get these systems having a major impact on the world until we find a way to interweave those trust and identity components. So we had a whole show on this concept of self-sovereign identity recently, and I think you nail it. We've got half of it. We need to go somewhere else. And certainly if we're going to apply something like blockchains 
to the wider world, right? It's okay where there is a native cryptocurrency and the only thing you are doing is trading within that environment. So Bitcoin works under the pseudonymous type of structure, but anything that's going to touch the outside world, including voting in particular, this you know identity problem, I think comes straight into it. I was struck by how you know really innovative a lot of the quadratic voting concepts that you and Vitalik worked on are, but there was always this prospect to game it, and the gaming would happen precisely through the action of establishing multiple identities and therefore being able to skew the votes by hiding who you are, right? And that's where this core problem of the internet comes into it. But I want to take that into this other question about voting that is it's come up a lot because we're trying to think about how do we create an electoral environment, an election process that is fairer and yet has integrity, that has greater access and doesn't see us with all of this doubt that we're currently seeing around it. And people are promoting blockchain voting and it's incredibly contentious. For the most part, I would say the developer community, the engineers are almost unanimously opposed to it and pointing out that you know it imposes massive security risks. And I think that's a totally important thing to be thinking about. But I'm also aware of the fact that these questions about what we're trying to achieve surely also have to be raised in the context of disenfranchisement and what are we trying to achieve and who's out of the system and what risks do we run what, and how, how can we mitigate them? But if there are certain risks, are they worth running to some extent if what you are going to achieve by, by these more open, accessible systems is actual enfranchisement, that everybody gets a chance to vote. And therein also, I think it has to be solved through some sort of identity solution. But I wondered whether, you know, Jeff, because you're obviously you're looking hard at blockchains and things, where does blockchain voting, is it viable? And, and how does that feed into what you're thinking about? Uh, it is such a big idea. And when we look at, just to give you an example of the problems in the world that, that I feel like it will take Something that's so significant, and there was a, a, a story that came out of Politico just about a week and a half ago that reported that there's been $8 billion that's been lost already to fraud as a result of the CARES Act. So there have been, in some states, as an example, three-fourths. This was amazing to me. In Colorado, they were reporting that, that three-fourths of all applications for stimulus funds were fraudulent. And they're using systems in some states that were built on technology in the 70s, built on COBOL. We had a project a couple of years ago, just as an aside, that, uh, a city in the U.S. that was thinking about declaring bankruptcy. I'll never forget walking the halls and seeing those old monochrome screens with the little flashing green cursor. That's when it became real to me of how much of a problem this digital infrastructure is. And I think when it will be known that the losses so far in the U.S. for the CARES Act have totaled $8 billion, and the experts are predicting that we'll probably lose up to $26 billion to fraud because what had to happen? It had to happen really fast. We needed to push money out to people because we were in a crisis. So there was a bright light shining on the fracture of our uh, institutions and how fragile that digital infrastructure was. I think, Michael, it'll take something like that when it's finally known how much we actually lost maybe that will be enough for the U.S. states and others to rise and say, we need to, number one, solve this digital identity problem. Because at the heart of that issue with the CARES Act is that we don't have a digital identification system in this country. That was at the very heart of why we've lost so much money. And I think it's the same problem 
that we're going to face if we want to institute voting on a blockchain. I certainly agree with you. And I'm just I kind of staggered by the $26 billion number. I mean, I, I hadn't heard that before. That certainly was a breath catcher. Just pointing out it's only one-tenth of Jeff Bezos's net worth, but carry on. That makes me feel better. Thanks for the context. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for the context, Michael. But nevertheless, nevertheless, it's a lot of zeros. You, one of the things I find very interesting about our, our kind of the new obsession with programmable money is, you know, well, you certainly have to know what you are programming into it. And while there is a lot of excitement around, we can now program money, da, da, da. Well, there has to be agreement and consensus around the governance of what the program is. You know, what exactly is it that we are programming? And how do we ensure that there is some flexibility built into that so that it can change with, I almost called it regime change, with administration change, you know, it can change election to election, or even it could change with some kind of more liquid democratic kind of function that would indicate, you know, where citizens really want to put money. So one thing I, I, found, I've been, I've found really interesting is, is the city of Berkeley was looking at municipal bonds and putting municipal bonds onto a blockchain and issuing them such so that there could actually be voting by bondholders in a very fluid manner uh, for infrastructure projects. And there could be almost like a ranking or a rank choice, if you will, kind of notion of where those funds ought to be spent that were dedicated to public infrastructure. So which pothole gets fixed and this kind of thing. And of course, there are all kinds of challenges in that sort of experiment, because I think, Glenn, to your point, you know, how do you ensure there's not artificial weighting of some of the voting? But there are mechanisms that are governance mechanisms that can actually be programmed into programmable money that can enable us to be much more radical, I think, in how we are exploring uh, democracy and its application into government receipts. Yeah, that's something we've been working on a lot. There's a mechanism called quadratic funding, which is related to quadratic voting that we've been using uh, both within blockchains to fund open source software projects with Vitalik Buterin, but also to fund things much more like you were saying, support for small businesses that doesn't go through things like the CARES Act, but is actually directed by citizens using voting processes. It's basically a matching process where the funding, the public funding matches individual contributions, but in a sort of democratic way where you match more small contributions than large ones and more to ones that get more different, unique individual supporters. But again, identity is absolutely at the core of all of that. It is such an interesting idea. And I think that, that we have to separate what is in the interest of the people versus what is in the interest of a collection of individuals. And we spent some time and looked at all of those ballot initiatives that had a tax effect. And if you want to predict how one of those ballot initiatives will go, it's easy. Just look at, is it going to raise taxes for more people than not? Or is it going to lower taxes? And to some extent, when you look at taxes, it's a simple question. I can tell you how people will vote. They don't want to pay more taxes. Whenever we ask people if they want to pay more, what concerns me about it is that they're looking at it for their own self-interest. And I hope that there are some legislators and policymakers that aren't solely looking at their personal interests when they're thinking about what those tax policies are. Direct democracy has its place, but I'm not sure that we want laws that are a collection of what all of us as individuals want. I'm just not sure that that's the right answer always. You opened up a rabbit hole that we could just go deeply down there, Jeff. Sadly, we have to end it here, but that was getting super interesting. And maybe we'll let you have, to have, the, have the two of you back again and like we'll, we'll have part two of this. I could talk about this stuff for ages. Glenn Whale, 
Jeff Saviano, thank you so much for being with us. It was fascinating. Sheila Warren, as always, my fabulous co-host. Thanks for being here. Tune in, everybody. We'll be back again next week for uh, another round of all this again. So from all of us, thanks very much. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Glenn Weil, and Jeff Saviano. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced, edited, and announced by Adam B. Levine. Stay tuned for the next episode of Money Reimagined, where we'll zoom in on China and their ambitious plans for a national digital currency. Plus, more insightful shows on the Coindesk Report subscriber feed. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com, or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thank you.